Welcome back to Archiving AK. If you haven't listened to us before, we are a podcast produced by the UAA APU Consortium Library, Archives and Special Collections, hosted by me, archivist Gwen Higgins, and head of the Archives and Special Collections, Arlene Schmuland. We're almost at the end of our Archives Month podcast series, and today we're interviewing Freya Anderson, from the Alaska State Library about copyright in Alaska. Okay, Freya, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I, goodness, I have been in Alaska for most of my life. Um, I was actually born in Connecticut, but I've had family in Alaska since um, the 30s. And um, graduated from high school from Kenai, from college from Fairbanks, and was working at UAA and realized that if I wanted to um, move ahead, that I was going to need to get the library degree. So I went out to Syracuse and got that. And then um, wanted to get back into Alaska. And so I applied for a job in Juneau at the State Library. just because I was trying to get back into Alaska and got that. And um, I remember about six months into that job, some positions opened up at UAA and I was so torn. I wanted to apply for them so bad, get back up to South Central where I have family and friends and stuff. But I, but I felt like giving just six months um, to the state library after they'd brought me up from outside didn't seem really fair so I didn't apply for those and by the time a year came around I had found a church and made some really close friends and um and Juno was home and so I came here for for a year this is a common story in Juno I came here for a year and this is now 21 years later and Mm -hmm. here I am (laughs) well I came to Alaska originally for three years um it was only supposed to be three years and here I am almost seven years later and I'm I'm still here (laughs) yeah yeah I I don't imagine it's hard to imagine myself living anywhere else at this point Mm -hmm. I mean theoretically it's possible I suppose (laughs) but um but this is home um and I've had quite a few different jobs here at the state library started out as an interlibrary loan librarian then did uh, public services and digital librarian and then head of information services now I'm still the head of information services, but I've been the acting head of the historical collections for a few years as well. And I'm sort of in the process of rewriting that position. So it'll be a combination position um, once that's done. Okay. Um, and the historical collections is of course where the archives comes into it with the special collections and or with sorry with the manuscript collections and with uh the photo collections and then um, a fair amount of audiovisual as well Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah you guys have some some really neat things in the in the historical collections it's pretty fun (laughs) (laughs) it's 
there's some really, really cool stuff. You're kind of our resident copyright expert here in Alaska, at least in the library world. Um, How did you get interested in copyright? That's kind of a funny, um, funny story. Um, When I went to library school in Syracuse, I was horribly, horribly homesick for Alaska. Literally, as I was traveling to Syracuse, I had had to switch planes in Detroit. And getting on the new plane, I had to tell myself, take one more step, take one more step, take one, you know. And um, so I was horribly homesick. And I wasn't at all certain I was doing the right thing. Um, But I went to, I, I, you know, I got there and I got into my apartment and oh man it was it was a comedy of errors let me tell you but um but I finally went to my first class which was an evening class so three hours long Mm -hmm. um with on uh, library policy and law and it was by a fantastic professor Stuart Sutton um he's just amazing he um isn't he's working with WIPO now um anyway um he um started out talking about copyright law and he was such a good professor such a good presenter that it just brought everything alive and and it really brought home how important it is not only sort of in general but to have of knowledge of how to make that balance in order to um, sort of not give away the farm as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember he talked, we were having a, a discussion in the class about a case and I'd brought up, I don't know, some answer. I don't even remember what case it was at this point, but, um, but I'd, made some comment on it and he said well that that may be the way it should be um you know based on you know your reading of the law my reading of the law but based on case law here's the way it actually is <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh yeah okay <laughs> so um so there's an opportunity for some really great theoretical discussions but then there's also you know where the where things come together and you can determine what the courts are actually deciding on things and then after that class was when I when I knew I'd made the right choice because you know when I was a back in Anchorage and I'd come home from work and I'd try to talk to my family about, you know, the things that had happened at the library and they're all like, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> and, um, but we came out of this class and folks were walking to the bus or to their cars or whatever. And everybody was into it, you know, and there were, everybody was, there was, there were like all these animated discussions going off. <laughs> in the different directions and it was like yes I found my people (laughs) and so so that was awesome so that's a little bit broader than how I got into copyright but um, I'm kind of an emotional person and it really was an emotional thing that connected me to that 
don't think of copyright as being emotional, but <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, it's always, you know, just having that feeling of belonging somewhere mm-hmm. can be really, really powerful. Yeah. So um, in terms of, since this is the archiving AK mm-hmm. podcast, what is uh, different or more challenging about dealing with copyright for archival materials rather than books or other types of published material? So the, the two biggest issues that I, that I notice is that, you know, in this context, we're often, or maybe even usually, um, dealing with unpublished material. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are two things, two sort of practical things that are, that make this more difficult, which is that the dates are often un- unknown. You may have sort of a general idea of when a picture was taken or when something was written, but, and, and, and sometimes you can find dates, um, you know, like a letter may be dated or a, or a diary may be dated, but oftentimes there aren't dates. Mm-hmm. And so um, that makes it kind of tricky to figure out, try to figure out, sort of when when you're talking to about something and um and when something was fixed if it's not published when something is fixed when something is written or a photograph is taken or whatever is really important for determining how long something might be under copyright protection right yeah and then um the sort of related thing is that it's often unclear who the author was mm-hmm. for a specific item. So maybe you have a collection and that collection is from a person, but that doesn't mean that that person um, wrote everything in the collection or took all of right. the pictures. I mean, maybe they have, maybe they collected pictures for the whole family. Maybe most of the pictures were taken by their spouse or by uh, a um a child or something like that and or maybe the letters aren't the letters that they sent because they would have sent those away mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're not the ones yeah. they wrote they're the ones they received and so those could have all sorts of different people right who who were the authors of those materials well yeah and even even if you do know the the author you know um their death date can be you know what helps determine if yeah, something yeah. is still under a copyright. So you might know, okay, the person whose collection this is took the photo, but you don't have a lot of information about that person. We run into that with published materials as well. <laughs> <laughs> that one's less unique. But, yeah. But, but it yeah. does, but it particularly I think comes into play when you have something where the author is not the main person not the person who donated the collection like Mm -hmm. maybe you know when some somebody passed away because their their heirs donated the collection for them right and right so so you might have a death date but that doesn't mean you have a death date for the person who wrote them a letter right um and so those are kind of tricky um the other thing sort of unrelated to fit this sort of practical figuring things out is that um, copyright tends to be more restrictive in, in, in some different ways 
for unpublished materials. And, and, and when I say it in some different ways, it's because the law has changed over the years. And so mm -hmm. it depends on somewhat on when, what law it was under at the time it was written or picture taken or whatever. And, um, but the default seems to be to sort of the longer end of copyright protection because if something is published, then it that implies that the author or creator is intending for that to be public. Right. <laughs> right? But if it's not published, that's not necessarily their intention. And so I think I personally think that's why. Um, right. So the copyright law was that way. So copyright kind of acts as a protection of people's privacy right, in that bit. situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another thing that comes into play with libraries as well, but I think maybe more with archival materials, archival collections, is not strictly speaking copyright, but there are a lot of sort of related issues that I think come into play and that that were sort of gradually getting more of an understanding about things like so so you may determine that you don't need to say ask for permission to digitize something and put it online because it's maybe fallen into the public domain mm -hmm. but even if it has fallen into the public domain you may want to ask for permission anyway because of issues like donor relations community mm -hmm. relations and perhaps most importantly different cultural approaches to intellectual property mm -hmm. and um, so there are times when maybe maybe even say you got permission from an individual but what you're talking about is considered to be um, basically owned by the community or, or by the, the, the group. So then does that individual have the right to give permission? And that's, I mean, maybe legally, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but not necessarily always in, in a more, I guess, ethical framework. And so that's one area where I think libraries and archives are getting better about that, but, mm -hmm. um, but we're always learning more and so trying to get better still. What are some things that people tend to get wrong about copyright, you know, assumptions they make? I see a real spectrum of that. Um, I see people who assume that everything is always under copyright and you, you can't use other people's work under pretty much any circumstances at all, which is not true. Yeah. <laughs> but I also see at the other end that all use is okay as long as you're not making money or um, as long as you give appropriate attribution, which is important for plagiarism mm -hmm. and it's important for appearing as a good actor like if some copyright issue came to court 
but it's not directly related to copyright yeah. <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the areas where I've seen this a lot is where when you run into um, fan fiction or mashups where they're sort of less officially published, right? They're not mm-hmm. going through a publisher. They're, but they are making it available, right? They're they're making copies or a public performance or or a display, all of which are protected. And um, a lot of times, they'll maybe there might be a fair use, a strong sometimes even a strong fair use case. Sometimes maybe not. <laughs> Um, but they say that basically no copyright infringement is intended, intended, and so it's okay. And um, saying that you don't intend to infringe on copyright doesn't automatically make what you're doing not infringe <laughs> on copyright. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's an odd thing there, but you know there you go, and. I think a lot of smart publishers leave that alone or even encourage it because I think a lot of times um, the fan fiction or mashup um, communities end up being the strongest supporters and purchasers of content. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes their works can um, keep a, a, a world or uh, a character alive and may may result in um, a much more robust community um, of and a mu- robust product content. So I think it can be really mutually beneficial. But the whole I don't mean to infringe copyright, so I'm not right. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know so much about that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We certainly get around <laughs> the copyright thing in in a number of ways. Um, in our in our institution, we have uh, you know like a form with a little mm-hmm. disclaimer about we may not hold copyright to this to this item and it's it's up to you to um uh clear copyright with the copyright holder when like most of the time copyright for the for the item is is unknown so yeah no and I don't know how many times in a few situations you know we know the copyright holder Mm -hmm. we know who it is and we we send them to that person first to get permission before Mm -hmm. we're able to do anything but um I think that's pretty common. I think most institutions put that responsibility on the user. What What's kind of quirky about that one is how many times we'll get a publisher or an author at the publisher's insistence um, contacting us for copyright permission. And we say that very same thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're yep. giving you permission to use our copy. That doesn't mean, <laughs> right? That yeah, that doesn't mean you have per- copyright permission. It just means that we're, we'll allow you access to our stuff, right? And 
and and they're so insistent no we need you to like sign something giving Mm -hmm. us copyright and we're like can't do that (laughs) yeah yeah we get that too um with with people uh publish publish it is usually publishers um Mm -hmm. and sometimes sometimes they back off and then sometimes they you know decide not to use the the image but it's it's funny that they think that just because you know they've agreed to cite us properly cite the image properly it means they can just go ahead and and use it and you know copyright isn't an issue yeah and I mean another thing that goes into that is is fair use so Mm -hmm it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to get permission. It could mean that they need to make a fair use um, analysis and determine that their use is fair. And if they do that, then that's fine. We don't, we we don't say that we need you to get permission. We we say that we need you to clear copyright. Right. And so it's, and so if that clearance mean is done as a result of a fair use analysis, Mm-hmm. more power to them yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, I think it's interesting also like some people's assumptions about what constitutes fair use you know mm-hmm. is it just that they're not making money off of it because uh, I think some people assume that that's the case but it's yeah. a lot more complicated than that yeah uh, and a lot of people also will assume, like, say, if something is for educational use, mm-hmm. it, it's automatically fair use. And yep. certainly um, something being for educational use is a strong argument for fair use. I mean, that's a, a big part of it, mm-hmm. but it's not the only part of it. And and just because you're in a school or doing things, something to learn um, doesn't mean doesn't mean that it's necessarily okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found it interesting. So um, this summer, uh, Kyle Courtney from Harvard University, um, mm-hmm. he taught that six-week um, copyright first responders training for people up here in Alaska. And, you know, just going through the different ways of determining what's fair use or mm-hmm. not. Yeah, it was it was really interesting in seeing some of the the cases that were decided, okay, this this is fair use, this isn't. When they seemed similar, mm-hmm. but just a small little difference could could make a difference one way or the other. Um, I still don't always get those right when I'm... I know. <laughs> I know. You know, um, it's like, oh, <laughs> So speaking of that copyright first responders course, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that program and what the benefits are of going through that training? Yeah, that program was created by Kyle Courtney, uh, as you mentioned, from Harvard. And um, initially he had set that up within the Harvard community and it was so um, successful for the libraries there that he's been expanding it. Um, and now there are groups across the country and um, starting to look at potentially even internationally, although the law would change, but the, 
the sort of format that modality um, is being looked at internationally. Um, and basically for the for folks who aren't familiar with that, the idea beyond copyright first responders is to take a group of people who work in cultural heritage institutions. Initially it was just libraries, but it's really expanded. So if you work in a library or archives or museum, um, gallery, um, then this is something that might work for you. And the idea is to give everybody sort of an advanced beginner <laughs> level of copyright <laughs> training. So you're not getting your law degree, right? But you're digging into it more than most people do. And giving folks that background in copyright so that they can then help their communities, whether, whether that be their institution or um, their end users, the people who may, maybe come into a public library or uh, could be researchers. So we can't give legal advice, but we can talk about sort of different aspects of the copyright law and we can, we can share examples of what we've seen that may or may not usually won't fit exactly somebody's particular circumstances, but can help them figure out sort of where they would be and, and what, whether they need to um, consult with an intellectual property attorney or if it's something they can figure out for themselves. So, and then it helps us with our own work in, in, within the institution as well. And then what I think is, uh, there's kind of two factors that I think make this program different and than, um, than a lot of other training. And really, I think they're really important. Um, one is that um, you don't go through the training and then boom, you're done. Mm -hmm. There are um, ongoing ways that we can learn, continue to learn about copyright and that we can support each other. There's a list, an email list, that is closed. You have to have gone through the training in order to be in that group. But then within that group, we can bounce ideas off of each other. We can share uh, information about more training opportunities and, and things like that. So um, we, uh, were, we were a little bit late with this uh, summer group in getting the um, list set up, but um, but it's set up now and we, we've gotten a couple of questions where someone, sometimes they've come up with a solution themselves, but you just want to bounce it off to someone and say, eh, did I get this right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I think in the examples that we've had come through the list so far, I think they probably did get it right. Um, but it's still, it's reassuring and it also helps the rest of us think about those things because otherwise, you know, the copyright questions might not, um, might not be as diverse, we might not be as well-rounded um, in that. And then, then we also will do ongoing training and that can be anything from um, attending classes and then sharing that information with others in our cohort, or it could be, um, you know, reading an article and discussing it together. Um, by probably given the um, the way Alaska is, 
um, <laughs> online mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, or phone maybe, but, um, and gives us that opportunity to really keep growing together. And then each group, each copyright first responders group is um, geographically, is in a single geographic location. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason why we don't just get added into all of the copyright first responders for the whole country, right? right. And and that reason is because part of part of the benefit of having somebody local who can help people with their copyright questions is we can incorporate some of those things that I mentioned um, earlier on where we're talking about um, um, community standards, cultural standards, cultural um, norms. And we can combine that with copyright. So when we're talking to somebody about whether they can take this picture and put it on t-shirts and sell it, um, we can talk about, well, that picture would be in the public domain. So sure, do what you like, but that picture may be in the public domain, but it also may be culturally sensitive. And so they might want to consider maybe um, talking to some elders from the community first or um, before they make any decisions or things like that. And, And that's really different in different locations. And so that this program allows using local people um, so that we can keep those aspects in mind as well. Yeah. So talking about, you know, having having local experts and, and local differences in copyright issues and other related issues, what are the unique copyright issues in Alaska? Um, I think we probably don't have unique copyright issues directly so much, mm-hmm. but some of the responses, I think, are, are a little bit different. Partly um, with a lot of the materials that we're um, dealing with, we have a smaller population than most places. And so it may sometimes be easier for us to find copyright holders to ask Mm -hmm. for permission. It may be easier if something's published, um, oftentimes with really small publishers, they don't have something in place to monetize every single sale. And so they're more willing to say, oh yeah, sure, whatever, do <laughs> do what you want. Um, whereas if you're, you know, say in New York and things are where, where a lot of publishing houses are based and, and so things like local history might go through a big publisher rather <laughs> than um, um, something where they're, more focused on making that information more publicly accessible rather than focused on um, making more money off of it. And that's one of the real benefits I've found (laughs) of living and working in Alaska. A lot of people just really want to share the information and, and, and that's, I think, really nice. I think one other thing that you know, it's a spectrum and I, I don't know that I'm, and we're certainly not perfect, but I do feel like Alaska's 
maybe a little bit further ahead than some places in terms of and in terms of cultural responsiveness. Certainly we're not there. I'm not trying to say that we're anywhere close to perfect. And there are probably places that are further ahead than we are. But I think at least most of the people that I know, that I've known from archives and libraries and museums in Alaska, are aware of those issues and are trying to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, so we may not always get it right, but I think we're trying. Yeah, we we certainly here at UAA are are really trying to to be better about about cultural sensitivity and and cultural issues. Um, and it's sort of an area too where you know the more you learn, the more you find out that you don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't want at all to to say that we've got it down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even remotely, but um, yeah. But we're trying. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, we still have a long way to go, but. Mm-hmm. We are trying. Um, so what are your favorite uh, resources related to copyright? It's not perhaps terribly surprising that I have a guide <laughs> related to copyright. Um, I actually initially created it for a workshop that I did for the online with libraries or OWL program. So um, it's just L-A-M for libraries, archives, and museums dot alaska.gov slash owl copyright. Um, And so I've put pretty much all of my favorite um, resources on there. But I have to say that my very favorite thing, um, which I use all the time because I'm just horrible about dates, is the public domain slider from the American Library Association's Copyright Advisory Network. At the time it was created, it was the copyright, just the Copyright Advisory Network. Now that's part of a new group called CLEAN, and I can't for the life of remember remember what all of the letters stand for. But um, there is a digital version of it available online. Um, I have a paper one, and I love it to pieces. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think you can get those anymore. And you can find the digital one online at um, www.librarycopyright.net. Okay. And that is my very favoriteest thing because you can slide, you slide your slider to where, to when something was published or if it was not published, mm. um, when it, when it might've been created. And, um, and it tells you, yes, that's in the public domain or, uh, Maybe. Sometimes it's maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and, uh, it really takes a lot of, like, I've seen charts for this before, but they're complicated. And they can be really valuable sometimes when you really need to dig into something that's more complex. But Mm -hmm. for just quick and dirty, this is the easiest way to find that I've found. Um, as someone who can't hold all the dates in my head um, to, to make a determination about whether something's likely to be in the public domain or not. Yeah, 
Cool. Um, well, all of those those resources that you mentioned, Freya, um, I'll I'll link to them on the the notes page for for this show. Thank you for agreeing to do this. It was fun. Sure. I I thought it was fun too. I always like talking about copyright in Alaska and, you know, put the two together and it's just about perfect. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed our Archives Month podcast series. We hope to start releasing episodes a little bit more regularly, maybe once every couple months. You can find information about upcoming episodes by following us on social media or by subscribing on the podcast app of your choice. You can find past episodes, including episodes from our first season, on our website.